Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. But we will start in Leviticus uh, chapter 26. But this is the final week of kind of our survey of the end times. Um, and so just kind of, you know, it's been a week or two since we've been together. So the last time we were, we were together, we saw the uh, God rejection of Israel when Jesus came as Messiah. He proved through his, uh, his miracles that he was the Messiah beyond a shadow of a doubt. And Israel, through their leadership, rejected him. And when they did that, uh, he, it caused Jesus to change his ministry on earth. He stopped uh, speaking clearly about who he was and started teaching in parables. Uh, he stopped uh, performing miracles on anyone and only performed miracles on those based on the faith they had in him. Uh, and he stopped. Uh, he t- told people not to tell him that he was the Messiah. And he really uh, began... Instead of teaching publicly who he was, he began preparing his followers to take up his work when he was gone. Um, now, he, he, he withdrew his promise to bring the kingdom to that generation of Israel. Now, he will bring his kingdom to Israel as he promised. But first, they have to meet his demand that he gave before he ascended to heaven. Uh, And he said that a future generation of Israel must confess that he is the Messiah, but not just confess that he's the Messiah, they have to confess their sins and their father's sins of rejecting him. And when that happens, and only when that happens, will he return and set up his kingdom on earth. There has to be a national confession of faith from the nation of Israel. We saw this in Leviticus chapter 26. Uh, Leviticus 26, starting in verse 40, Moses speaking says, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and 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 also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept the punishment of their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember, and I will remember the land. See, God gave them a loophole uh, in the book of Leviticus. He said, if you want me to bring my kingdom, you have to obey the law of God perfectly. Of course, they never could. That was the entire purpose of the law, that no one, human, no human, could completely obey the law. Uh, it was just, it was, there was too much to it. Only one person completely obeyed the law, and that was Jesus, God in the flesh. He came as a sinless man, uh, God-man, completely obeyed the law, never once transgressed the law, so that when he died on the cross, he was dying completely innocent and sinless in our place. He was the sacrificial lamb. But God said, if you can't completely obey the law, then if you want my kingdom, then the entire nation has to confess their sins, the sins of their fathers, and accept Jesus as their Messiah. And the fulfillment of this confession is what Jesus demands for him to come to earth to set up his kingdom. And look, what's really interesting is this was written by Moses thousands of years before Jesus ever came. 
God knew what was going to happen. This proves to us the inerrancy of Scripture. Where thousands of years before Jesus was ever born, God prophesied, Israel's going to reject me as Messiah, but I'm giving them a way back. I'm giving them a way to, to come back into relationship with me. But that brings us to a, a question we've got to answer. What is going to cause an entire nation to confess Jesus as their Messiah and repent of their sins? It's going to happen. We know it's going to happen because the Bible tells us it's going to happen. But what could possibly take place to make an entire group of people who currently reject Jesus as Messiah, reject the entire New Testament, going to cause them to accept Him as their Savior. And this is where kind of things that we've seen earlier in this study are going to start to make a little more sense. Of course, we remember this chart. This is Daniel's 70 weeks of sevens. And of course, we said every week represents seven years. So this is 490 years that Daniel prophesied would happen in the book of Daniel, things that would happen. Um, This represents a time that Israel is put under the judgment of God because of their rejection of Him. For 490 years, God was going to judge Israel because they rejected Him and and, and went from following Him. But there's a pause there. We've seen that pause. We're only waiting on the last seven years. The last, last one week, which is the last seven years, there, God put a pause or stopped uh, the clock. And He did that so that the gospel could go to the Gentiles. That pause is the church age. We live in that pause right now. So God stopped the clock and is waiting on one week to begin again. And He did that so that the Gentile nations could come to God. Um, but we've got to remember, why did the 77s have to happen in the first place? Well, over in Daniel, chapter number 9, <clears throat> verse number 24. <clears throat> um, where was I? Okay, yeah. Chapter 9, verse number 24 says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression." Now, finish doesn't mean that, you know, he doesn't say, I'm giving you this time to, you know, get all the sinning out of your system. Uh, Finish the transgression means God's going to to judge it for for completely. To finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make a reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So God said he's he's giving this 490-week or 490-year uh, period to bring Israel to a place of repentance, a place of national confession and national repentance. But God told Daniel that some things had to happen uh, before his kingdom would come and to Israel to repent of their sins and to be reconciled to God and made righteous was the last thing that has to happen. Basically, Jesus says, before I come to set up my kingdom on earth, and again, this is the second, this is not the rapture, this is the second coming of Christ to earth. Before Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom on earth, all of Israel has to accept Christ as their Savior. That has to happen. So this 490 years, it's meant to bring Israel to the point of a national confession of faith in Jesus. Now, of course, we've said that uh, 669 of these 70 weeks have happened, so we're only waiting on one seven-year period. And, of course, we call that 
the Great Tribulation. Uh, that is the one week that we are waiting on. So, what is going to bring Israel to a point of national confession? The Great Tribulation. The seven-year tribulation period is what is going to break Israel's heart, and they finally recognize their sin, they finally recognize their need of Jesus, and accept Him as their Savior. Um, that's, why, you know, that's why the world has to go through it. It is, it is so hard, and again, next, uh, the, our next study will really look at the events of the Great Tribulation. Uh, and when you really study them and see what happens, they, they are, are terrible, terrible things. It, it, tragedies and atrocities that the world has never seen before. The Bible says that it's going to be so bad, men are going to be praying that the, the mountains would fall on them and just kill them. Because the, the world is that bad. And it has to be that bad to bring Israel to a point of salvation. But there's more happening here. Uh, the first thing we're going to look at is Armageddon. We've all heard about Armageddon, right? We've all heard the Battle of Armageddon. Now, Armageddon is not... We, we hear the Battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is not uh, a battle. Uh, it is actually six battles. No, actually, none of the battles are named Armageddon. Armageddon comes from the final battle that happens in the Valley of Margadon, which we just kind of make... Armageddon, but there's not actually a battle named after this. So, uh, there's a lot of confusion about what Armageddon is. We're going to kind of go through a, a overview tonight. Again, it's, it's six battles that take place during the second half of the tribulation period, the last three and a half years. And again, our next study, you're gonna, we're going to have maps and battle plans and see who comes from where and who's doing what, and it's, it's, it's in-depth and it's a lot. Uh, but so right now, it's just, it's six battles happen at the end of the, at the second half of the tribulation period that, uh, and the, the final battle is when all the forces of the world converge against Jerusalem and Jerusalem and Israel is on the brink of destruction. Now, uh, the prophecies of these battles, they're all throughout scripture, but look at the book of Joel. Uh, we're going to be in Joel real quick, so the, the, they're all throughout Scripture, but we're going to look at first of them, we're going to look at a lot of them, but the first one we're going to look at is the book of Joel uh, in chapter number 3. Now, uh, the book of Joel tells us that in one of the, that in the final battle, when it begins, the entire world is attacking Jerusalem, uh, and all the remaining Jews that are alive on the earth at this time that have not accepted Christ as their Savior, that have not taken the mark of the beast, that are still around, they will be uh, huddled in the city of Jerusalem uh, during this battle facing certain destruction. Um, now these are, these are practicing Jews. These are Orthodox Jews. These are not uh, Jews that have accepted Christ as their Savior. They're not non-believing Jews. These are Orthodox practicing Jews. They refuse to worship the Antichrist. They believe in God, Jehovah, as their God alone. But they don't believe in Jesus that, as his Savior. So look in chapter 3, starting in verse number 11. <clears throat> Assemble yourselves and come, all ye faithful. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, 
and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round. Put ye in the sickle, uh, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. That makes, y'all understand that, right? Y'all got, I mean, that's totally clear. We all understand what's going on there. No, of course not, because it's Old English in an Old Testament book. It's hard to understand. Uh, now, here's what Joel is saying. The armies of the Antichrist, of course, this is uh, Israel, that's Jerusalem. The armies of the Antichrist are going to come down the Jezreel Valley from the north. They're going to come south down the Jezreel Valley, and they're going to set their forces up on the other side of the Mount of Olives, west of uh, Jerusalem. <clears throat> and they're going to attack from the west. So they're going to come down, mount their forces, get ready, and then go from the, from, come from the east and att attack from the west. I'm sorry, you can go east, but attack from the west to Jerusalem. Now, Zechariah, so you might want to turn there, Zechariah tells us that God uses the nations of the world to attack Israel for a, a couple reasons. So Zechariah chapter number 12 uh, tells us these things. Uh, the first reason that God uh, sends the nations to destroy Israel is so that he can destroy the nations that are attacking Israel. Zechariah 12, starting in verse number 8. Uh, verses 8 and 9. In that day shall the Lord... You got it there here? Yeah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them, and that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angels of the Lord before them, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So God says, I'm, I'm allowing this to happen. I'm allowing, I'm gathering all the armies of the earth together in one place to attack Jerusalem so I can defend Jerusalem. So I can prove to Israel that I'm, I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to keep my promise. That, there's, that they're never going to be destroyed, that I will always watch over them. The second reason that God uh, does this <clears throat> is so that God can defend Jerusalem against the enemies that are attacking them. Still in Zechariah chapter 12, starting in verse number uh, 2. <clears throat> Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in, in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces through all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. And that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness, and I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength and the Lord of hosts their God. So God says that when all the armies uh, come against Jerusalem, uh, he says he uses a metaphor that they're going to try to lift a heavy stone to throw at Jerusalem, but they're going to hurt themselves. How many of y'all have ever tried to lift something heavy and hurt your back? Yeah. How many of y'all have ever sneezed and hurt your back? Slept wrong and hurt your back? Yeah. Uh, but so he's saying there's going to be they're going to come and they're going to try to pick up this big stone to hurl at Jerusalem, and they're going to end up 
hurting themselves, trying to attack Jerusalem. So while Jerusalem is being, has been attacked before, and they've won. If you study the history of Israel, especially in the modern times, uh, if you study like the Seven Days War, where it, uh, Israel is attacked by basically every country surrounding them, they cut off the, the, the Red Sea Strait, and they, they cut off all these access to Jerusalem, and everybody's certain uh, Israel's going to fall because they're being attacked by Egypt and Lebanon and all these other countries. But Israel beats them back. There, there is no logical reason Israel should have survived as long as it has where it's at, uh, surrounded by all of its enemies, except for God. God has promised to preserve, and God has promised to take care of Israel. And so Israel has been in wars before where they should not have won, but they did. But nothing like this. This is not being attacked by five or six surrounding enemies. This is the entire world attacking them. You know, right now, if someone were to attack Israel, America would step in and defend them, as we should. We are, we are one of their greatest allies. There are other countries that step in and defend them. And that's, that's one thing that keeps them safe because people know if I attack Israel, I'm attacking America. And, you know, we've got way too much, way too many nuclear missiles to mess with us. Uh, but at this time, America will be attacking Israel, which for us, we can't even imagine that. But America will be one of the armies. Russia, China, uh, Europe, France, all these countries together will be attacking Israel to destroy them. And so this has never happened, but God is using this to show that He's going to fight for them. He's going to confuse the armies, and Israel will see God fighting for them. Now the last thing that we know God allows Armageddon for is that God orchestrates this battle to test and to refine Israel. Uh, back in Zechariah chapter 13. <clears throat> Starting in verse number 7. <clears throat> uh, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried, and they shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is are, is my God. Now, as a result of Israel being attacked, you know, this is what happens. Two-thirds of all Jews on earth are killed. By this battle, only a third of Jewish people are still alive. So, the tribulation has been bad for Israel. But the third that remains, they are huddled in Jerusalem trying to seek shelter, trying to seek help. They, they have no idea what's going on. I mean, it, it's got to be uh, a, a terrible time for them because uh, they've seen, you know, two-thirds of their people slaughtered through the first, half, the first part of the tribulation. And now they're in Jerusalem. They've got all the armies around them. They're being bombed. They're being shelled. 
uh, they're huddling together, they're, they're certain they're going to die. And the third that remains, they call on Jesus as their Savior. Now, Hosea tells us this too. So Hosea chapter number uh, 5. Hosea chapter 5, uh, verse number 15. The Bible says, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. See, the tribulation, this is how we know, uh, and I know we kind of hit on it a little bit before, but this is how we can know that the church will not endure the tribulation because the tribulation is not for us. It's not for the Gentile nations. It's for Israel. The tribulation is intended to bring Israel to a place of repentance, a place of every single remaining Israelite on the planet recognizing at one moment that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, it's to bring them a place of repentance and acceptance. There's a moment when the entire nation calls on God and accepts Jesus as their Savior. Back in Zechariah, I know I got you flipping around a lot, but hey, that's why I said just write them down. Back in Zechariah, uh, chapter number 12. Verse number 10 again says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So in this moment, uh, when Israel is on the, the brink of destruction, we see a mass conversion from the people of Israel. God pours His Spirit on them, and the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, kind of like Paul on the road to Damascus. You know, I know his eyes were closed, but his eyes were open spiritually, and he saw who Jesus was. That's what happens, but it's not just one guy on one road. It's every remaining Jew alive in Jerusalem at that time. And when they... Now, when you came to faith in Jesus, was it a joyous occasion for you? Yeah. But it's we're we're we accept Christ as our Savior and we're 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 happy about it, we're joyous about it. They when they realize that Jesus is the true Messiah, they're heartbroken because they know what they did to him. They know they've rejected him. They know that they have killed him, and now they're they're huddled in Jerusalem, about to be destroyed, their eyes are spiritually open, they realize that Jesus is the Messiah, they confess him. As Messiah, they confess their sins. They confess their forefathers' sins for killing Him. But they have no hope. See, we get saved. We, we have faith with hope. You know, our, our faith becomes like we have hope in heaven. They accept Christ by faith, but they, they, don't, they don't think because of their sins that He's ever going to help them again. So they accept Him as their Savior, but they have no hope thinking, well, this is just, we're getting what we deserve. He came to save us. We rejected Him. We killed Him. So we have no hope. They're, they, they are, they're the ones who killed the ones who came to save them. So it is faith, but it's faith without hope. They know Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't have any idea how He will ever have anything to do with Him again. Uh, verse 11 in Zechariah 12. <clears throat> in that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the morning 
of that place in the valley of Megadon. That's where we get the name Armageddon, Megadon. Uh, not Megalodon, or, you know, what's the Meg? That's the shark. Yes, yeah, not the shark. Uh, it's the valley. Um, and the land shall mourn, and every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. So, every single person who is part of the nation of Israel, who is still alive at this time, is included in this. This is not, you know, a mass delusion. This isn't a great revival service where there's powerful music and a preacher gets up and, you know, gets everybody stirred up in an emotional frenzy and emotionally they run down to the altar and get saved. They're not even really together talking about this. They are all alone. They are scared. They are under attack. They are sure that they are about to die. But all at once, by the work of God, through the Spirit of God, they all come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. Now let's break down what Zechariah is telling us. He gave us uh, three houses here, but he says the house of David and all his wives, the house of Levi and all his, house, uh, all his wives, and the house of Nathan and all, all his wives. Now, he, he does this, and we'll get to the last house in a minute, but he does this for a specific reason. Uh, who does the house of David represent? He represents the kings of it, the kings and nobles of Israel. David represents the royal blood of Israel. So the kings and the nobles of Israel. What about Nathan? Who was Nathan? He represents all the prophets of Israel. Then, of course, we got Levi, and Levi, of course, the priests. All the priests of Israel. Now, this is the leadership of the nation of Israel. Why do you think Zechariah specifically points out that the leadership of Israel will accept Jesus as Messiah? Why do you think Zechariah points out that the leadership of Israel will accept Jesus as Messiah? Well, who's the ones that rejected him when he was on earth? The leadership. It was the priests, the prophets, and the kings. They're the ones that told the rest of the nation of Israel, he's not the Messiah, he's doing the work of Satan. So, God is specifically telling us that the, there's not a leadership component of Israel that does not repent of their sins and accept Christ as their Savior. But then there's a name you probably don't recognize. The house of Shimei. Anybody know who Shimei is? We're going to see him in a couple of weeks on Sunday mornings. Because he's way back in, in 2 Samuel. Uh, happens during the, the story of Daniel and uh, David. And again, the life of David and the life of, of uh, Jesus parallel each other a lot. So in 2 Samuel chapter 16, <clears throat> I didn't put this on the screen, so you may want to write it down. Uh, 2 Samuel 16. Starting in verse number 5. I'll give you, so 2 Samuel 15, 5 through 8. <clears throat> 2 Samuel 16, 
verses 5 through 8. And when King David came to Baharum, behold, there came thence out a man of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. He came forth and cursed still as he came. And he cast stones at David and all the servants of the king David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And thus said Shimei when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, and thou man of Belial. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. Now, uh, when David came to power, he had a, a lot of uh, family members of Saul's that he had to deal with. There was a lot of, because when Saul died, a lot of family came out of the woodwork. It's kind of like if you won the lottery. Family's coming out of the woodwork. So I saw one guy who won, he won like $470 million lottery, and he showed up with gloves on and a mask and... You know, no one knows who he is, and that's how I would do it. Now, I'm not telling my family anything. I'm just going to quietly pay off my house, you know, quietly buy a, a nice truck, not a, you know, I'm not going to go blowing it. But anyway, it's like if you won the lottery, family comes out of the woodwork. When the king dies, family comes out of everywhere. And David spent a lot of the first years of his, of his king, uh, being king, kind of quashing these rebellions, these uh, relatives of Saul who would kind of get a little army together and try to overthrow David. And so he spent a lot of time fighting these these family members, and now he's been at peace for a while, but now Absalom, his own son, is trying to overthrow him. Uh, now, typically in this time, when one king died and an entire another family took over, the new king would hunt down and kill every single person who was related to the last king, no matter what, because he didn't want a third cousin twice removed showing up with an army trying to, to take over uh, his kingdom. David did not do that. He only fought the family members who attacked him. He did not seek to destroy them all. He did not want to wipe the house of Saul off the face of the earth. But so he's leaving Jerusalem, and here comes, you know, and again, he's leaving Jerusalem. Absalom has, has attacked him, and he's not fleeing because he's lost. He doesn't want to t fight his son. So he's, he's kind of confused. He's upset. He doesn't know what to do. He's leaving Jerusalem, and then here comes one of some distant relative of Saul, who's cussing at him and throwing rocks at him. Uh, Shimei is a brave dude. That's all i got to say. Because uh, David could have had him killed very, very easily. Um, and so he's, he's, he's attacking David. He's kind of, you know, he hates David. David is his enemy. Um, now Shimei curses David, throws rocks at him, and David is surrounded by his army. Then look at verse number 9. Then said Abishai, the son of Zurahab, of the, to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. So one of David's mighty men is like, say the word and I'll go kill that guy. Uh, he's got no right to curse at you like that. He's got no right to throw rocks at you. God, David, you say the word and I'm, he's dead. I'll cut his head off. Uh, and the king said, what have I to do with you, ye sons of Zurah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said unto him, curse David. Who shall, say, who shall then say, Wherefore dost thou, hast thou done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeketh my life. How much more now does Benjamin do it? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. So David's men want to kill him, but David 
won't let him. And now again, if you've been paying attention to Sunday mornings, you know David is a picture of Jesus. Uh, this common man of Israel is cursing the king as he leaves Jerusalem, and David, the king, spares him. And he tells his army, God told him to curse me, so let him curse me. He's doing exactly what God told him to do. We see the parallel between him and Jesus. Jesus didn't die because Israel put him on the cross, but because he put himself on the cross. He put himself there. And it re- for him to be on the cross, Israel had to reject him. That's why when they rejected him in, in Matthew, he doesn't completely wipe his hands with him and say, the rest of Israel, you're condemned. I'm only go-. That's why he says, I'm going to take some time to reach the Gentiles. I will fulfill my promise to you. I will come back for you. But you're going to have to do some things. But he, uh, he had to, they had to be cursed so that he would die on the cross to save us from our sins. So, uh, look, and then uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 19, David, the, the victory, the battle's over. Uh, he's, his son's dead, but he's, he's coming back to Jerusalem as a victorious king. Um, and he, he runs into Shimei again. So 2 Samuel chapter 19, starting in verse number 16. <clears throat> and Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, which was of Beram, hasted and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Last time, Shimei saw David. He's cussing him. He's throwing rocks at him. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants with him, and they went over Jordan before the king. Now this looks bad. Because now Shimei's coming back out to the king, but now he's got an army with him. He's got members of the house of Saul with him. It looks like he's coming to attack uh, David. Verse number 18. And there went over a ferry boat to carry the king's household and to do and to do what he thought good. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he came over Jordan and said unto the king, Let not my lord impute iniquity unto me, neither do thou remember that which thy servant did perversely the day that my lord the king went out of Jerusalem, that the king should take it to his heart. For thy servant doth know what I, that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I am come the first this day of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my lord, the king. So David, he cursed David when he left, but now he's coming back and he's, he's repenting of what he did. He has fallen on his face. He has humbled himself before David saying, I was wrong. I confess my sins. I'm the first one to come back to, to praise you. And he, he returns, and David is returning, uh, accepted by those that were, that had rejected him. Again, we see this, the, a picture of Jesus. When David left Jerusalem, he was cursed. Now he returns to Jerusalem. He is accepted and worshipped, almost, by those who had rejected him. Just like Israel will worship Jesus when he returns after they Rejected him. Then verse number 21. <clears throat> uh, but Abshani, the son of Zerah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with thee, son of Zerah, that ye should this day be adversaries unto me? Shall there any man be put to death this day in Israel? For, for do not I know that I am this day the king over Israel? Therefore the king said unto Shimei, 
Thou shalt not die, and the king swear unto him. So David's men still want to kill him. But David forgives him for his sin. This represents, what happens here represents the national confession of Israel. All of Israel will be saved at this moment when they're about to be destroyed. And we see that in the story between Shimei and David. So the house of Shimei is the every person who's left. It's a national confession. So we've got the, the royalty, we've got the nobles, we've got the prophets, we've got the priests, and we've got everybody else accepting Christ as their Savior right before uh, Israel is destroyed. So all of Israel is saved in this one instance. So God doesn't leave anybody out. He says everyone who is of Israel, who is, a, who is Jewish, who is still alive, will be saved. Now, there's another verse that's in the New Testament I want you to look at. Romans chapter number 11. This one passage, hopefully, if you understand, is going to bring all the rest of the, the verses, uh, the rest of the weeks we've looked at together. Revelation chapter 11, verse number 25. <clears throat> For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so, all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this my covenant, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sin. So, for a period of time, God has set aside His pursuit of Israel for us. For the Gentiles for us to be saved um, for the age of the, the church age. Now, there's a couple of different false teachings people get from this passage. The first one is called replacement theology. God has replaced the Gentiles with Israel. He's rejected Israel and, and put Gentiles in their place. And so there are some people who take this to an extreme, who are like, anyone who's Jewish cannot be saved. Uh, is it? It's, it's really like what we face today is really what we see in the Old Testament where Gentiles could be saved. We see Gentiles in the Old Testament. It's rare. It's not often. But we, we see them. You know, uh, Rahab the harlot, uh, Ruth. We see these Gentiles get saved and they're also in the line of Christ. But so it's, it's, it's rare. It's not common. That's not really the focus of the Old Testament. But it does happen. In the New Testament, God has not rejected Israel. He's just kind of stopped pursuing them so much. Now, do Jewish people get saved today? Of course they do. Now, it's a one-on-one -on -one thing. They have to understand the gospel and accept Christ as their Savior just like we did, uh, just like the Gentiles did in the Old Testament, believing He would come for them. But they have to believe that He did come for them. So individual Jews can be saved, and they are saved, and it happens all the time. It's not as common as with Gentiles, but it's, you know, God didn't reject Israel and take us in our place. He kind of put Israel aside for a while. So I'm not going to pursue you right now. I'm going to pursue them because I, I, I'm going to come back to you. And then there's also, in a, in, there's another false teaching uh, in verse number 26. It says, and so all Israel shall be saved. Now, some people say that if you're Jewish, you're saved automatically. 
just by being Jews, Jewish, you're saved. No. Now, this is talking about this national confession that every Jew who is alive at that time will be receive the Spirit of God and their eyes will be opened and they will receive Christ as their Savior, but two-thirds of them are dead. That's a, that's a lot to go through, you know, hoping and praying that you're going to make it through earth, make it through the tribulation, make it through the Armageddon, to be, to be lucky enough to be one of the ones left. And, and uh, to me, that, that's not a lucky one. Uh, because, again, the third who were left, they probably saw all their family massacred. So it's not a great, it's not like, oh, I'm the lucky ones. No, no, no. God gave grace to you. But so, you know, this is, but this is God saying he's kind of placed aside. Uh, he hasn't replaced us with Israel, but he's, he's stopped pursuing them as much as he did for time. For the age of the Gentiles. When the rapture comes, that's when that, that last week begins, and that's when God really puts his pursuit of the Jews uh, in, into high gear. Uh, that's going to continue to the age of the Gentiles is over, until the rapture of the church. Then all of Israel will be saved, and they will confess Jesus as their Savior after the tribulation. Revelation 19. <clears throat> this shows us what will happen after the entire nation of Israel confesses Christ as their Savior. <clears throat> Revelation 19, starting in verse number 11. I think our next study, I'm going to start listing these verses for you in your handouts. <laughs> so you're going to have them there. Because uh, next study is a lot of verses. All right, Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse number 11. And I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head were, on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now this clearly shows... Christ's second coming to earth. Not the rapture, His second coming to earth. And when He comes, He doesn't come alone. He comes with an army on white horses, clothed in white linen, pure and clean. Now, who is this army? Hmm? Believers. Some people say it's angels. Angels are never defined as clothed in white linen. Yeah, those who are saved and gone to heaven. Or who are raptured out. So this is, you know, angels are never described as clothed in white linen and pure and clean. This is a picture of salvation. White linen is always a picture of salvation in the Bible. So this is us returning with God uh, when He comes back the second time. Uh, so this is the church coming back again. We, and if we come back, it means we had to leave. We had to leave during the tribulation period. Because again, it's not for us. We're in heaven Seven-year seven year marriage up of the Lamb. It's going to be a great meal. 4,000 courses. Uh, bacon, cheeseburgers, all you can eat. You're never going to get full. It's going to be a great time. Uh, but so the church is coming back. Now, one more verse in Zechariah. <laughs> Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, starting in verse 2. 
For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravaged, and the half of the city shall go forth to captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great, a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall be removed toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from the, before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and the saints with thee. Now, if you, you look at Jerusalem, this is what, this is what I'm saying. And when, when Jesus returns, after Israel confesses him as their Savior, and he comes back to earth, he's coming to land, on the, he's to stand on the Mount of Olives. Because remember, the armies are attacking from the west. He stands on the Mount of Olives, west, east of, west of Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and the armies. And the, the scriptures tell us here that when he comes to earth and steps from the Mount of Olives, he breaks it apart. When you look at a map of Jerusalem, there is no valley running east from Jerusalem. Jesus makes one. He stands on the Mount of Olives and his... I don't, think it's, I don't think he comes huge. I don't think it's his height. I don't think it's like the Hulk smashing it. Just his power. When he hits the Mount of Olives, splits the Mount of Olives in half, Israel flees to the east, and Jesus and his armies attack from the east to those who are attacking from the west. And he fights the battle for them. Now, of course, he, he wins the battle. You know, it's, it's no matter how many nukes we have, it's Jesus, for goodness sakes. You can't beat Jesus. And so he speaks a word, kills everybody, and that's where he sets up his, after this, he, uh, he sets up his uh, thousand-year millennial reign, preparing the kingdom, uh, and then he sets up the kingdom for himself, for, for itself. And that's when we have the, we live in peace and prosperity with him for all of eternity. We'll look at that in the next study. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.